This is a teaching message from Church of the Living Water of Austin. We can go ahead and open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We will be going there. Uh, But I do have to ask everybody, even though Pastor Hill did, is everybody enjoying this fast? Is everybody taking advantage of every moment that you have available? I'm telling you, God is speaking, and his people are are the ones that are going to be listening. But know that he's speaking. He is definitely speaking. You know, just in, you know, fasting food and and the things like that that was on the list to be fasted, he spoke through that. You know, first off, it's about living a healthy life too, right? Because you know you have to be healthy to be able to keep delivering his gospel message, right? It's about living a healthy life. But he also spoke to me about giving. And, I, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm up to par in my giving. God's talking about, uh, there's more that I require of you. There's more that's required of you. See, because I've noticed just over this past month, right, all the meals that me and my wife, we, we planned them out like we should have been doing all along. We're planning them out and things, and we're setting them aside. And I'm just like, wow, we stopped using so much money on just little things. On the food that we were getting. If you didn't cook food, guess what you're doing? You're going out to eat, right? You're going to get something. Now, imagine somebody doing that. For breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And then not just the food, I'm getting my coffee. I'm getting this, and if you smoke, I'm getting my cigarettes. But then you have nothing to give to the ministry. Nothing to give to further the gospel. God is dealing with that right now. If anything else, he should be dealing with those two things, living a healthy life and giving. If nothing else, besides what we're teaching on Sundays, if anything else, he should be dealing with that, dealing with you with that. He's calling, us, he's calling us to so much more. He's not just calling you to meet the status quo. Oh, the ministry's asking for this, let me give to that, and that's it. He's not calling you to do that. He's calling you to go beyond. And I'm using giving as an example, but he's calling you to go beyond in every level, in every area, which takes sacrifice. I love how Pastor Hill went to sacrifice earlier just a moment ago, because, you know, what do we need? To sort of new heights in Christ, number three is going to be sacrifice. And that's what we're going to touch on today. But I love how she went to that. Because the life of a believer is sacrifice. If you ever get comfortable and you feel like, oh, I got everything, I don't need to give up something, you need to check yourself. Because the life of a believer is sacrifice in all that you do. And that's why we need a prayerful and fasted life. So again, I'm teaching on how to find rest. In this season of praying and fasting, how to find rest. And we said in the past uh, couple of teachings that every, in every dispensation of life, you're going to come to a crossroads. There's going to be a crossroads in your life in every dispensation. And a crossroads is a crucial, pivotal, pivotal juncture in your life where you're going to have to make a choice. A decision is going to have to be made. And at that choice, there's going to be three entities there. You for sure, Christ your advocate, and the enemy, the devil, your adversary. The accuser of the brethren. And whatever trials come our way, like the the crossroads. Remember what I said last week? Crossroads, everybody hears the word crossroads and they think, oh, something big is coming. No. It's the small foxes that spoil the vine. So whatever trials come your way, you have to purpose to choose Christ. Whatever services you perform, make sure that you're dependent on Christ. If you're getting up here singing, make sure you depend on Christ. If you're going to work, make sure you're dependent on Christ. 
every decision you make, if you just drive it up the street, make sure you're dependent on Christ. It could be your crossroads. Make sure you're dependent on Christ. So like I said last week, to soar to new, Christ, to new heights in your walk with Christ, we must always be prepared for the crossroad that's coming. And this means we have to be in position to respond properly. And what is positioning yourself to respond properly? It's being faithful. It's being, it's being determined to make sure that you come into your biblical fellowship, that you stay in your word, that you stay and remain praying and talking to God, stay in constant communication with God. See, that's the prayerful and the, the fast life that we have to live. This is what it means to be positioned to respond properly. See, a lot of people, they feel like they can develop their own Christian walk on their own. They can go home and hear from the Word or, and read the Bible themselves in their own understanding. But let me tell you, that's, not, that's been out of position. If you want to grow, you know, you're like, oh, oh, church, I can just go a couple days a week. But if you want to grow in your, in, your, in your walk with God and you want to be able to impart somebody to somewhere else, you have to be disciplined to this biblical fellowship. There's no other place you're going to learn. You cannot teach yourself. It's like giving a gun to a child. You cannot teach yourself. This is something you have to be disciplined to. Discipline to the word means being disciplined to your biblical fellowship as well. Discipline to coming to the table. We have to make our calling and our election sure. That's laboring to enter into God's rest. And we said, yes, God has covered us by his grace, but we have to respond to his grace the correct way. It can't just be, oh, I'm going to say that I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to still go ahead and do my own thing because that's not believing. What does God say? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not laboring to enter his rest. So we all in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now let's go ahead and go down to Hebrews chapter 4, just a little bit, or a little bit down further. And we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 11. And this is based off of, okay, well, can I enter into God's rest now? And I did tell you all in the past couple of weeks, yes, we can enter into God's rest now, right now. And we're going to read and see how. Number 4. Let us therefore, lest a promise being left us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. There it is. You want to enter into his rest right now? You have to enter in by faith. You know what that means? That means I have to walk by faith. That means when I say I believe, I have to believe with my life. And, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I want to go right into sacrifice. But I'm going to take my time and do a little, a little review here. But there it is. You have to have faith. Verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. What? There it is. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my as I have sworn as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, 
although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, those works that were finished from the foundation of the world, we all know we're talking about Genesis and God being finished with his works. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading here in verse 4. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Verse 6. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not, entered not in because of unbelief. So that, just so y'all know, if you're wondering about, you know, am I going to be able to enter into his rest? If you, if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, I'm going to tell you right now, no. I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you this. God is going to tell you that right now in his word. If there's no faith, if there's unbelief, you're not going to enter into his rest. Verse 7. Again, he limited a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so, a lo- so long a time, it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. See, to enter into his rest, if you didn't know, that means to be finished from your own works. Your own self-righteousness. Just like God was finished with his work from the foundation of the world. You know, the work where he sent the Son from the foundation of the world? We too are to be finished with our works. We have to repent from our dead works and walk in the Spirit. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning confidence steadfast to the end. So harden not your hearts, family. And then what did we say harden your hearts was, right? Because that's a saying, right? What is hardening your hearts? And I said hardening your heart is refusing to take and receive an understanding of God's will for your life. I, I didn't say not understanding it. I said refusing to take and receive an understanding. Which means you know where to go get it. You know, your biblical fellowship, the word, and in prayer. But I'm refusing to take that. I'm replacing that with what I want. That's hardening your heart. Because like we said earlier, God is speaking. But if you're hardening your heart, you're not going to hear him. But those who endeavor by faith will enter into his rest. So what is our faith? And I gave a very simple definition. I've given many definitions before, but this is a very simple definition. Our faith is the ability to endure until we see Christ face to face. That's what our faith is. The ability to endure until we see Christ face to face. And we said that's our equation. The word, prayer, biblical fellowship, plus your ability to endure until we see Christ face to face, that makes you the overcomer in Christ. That makes you the wall builder. But you have to be disciplined to those things. This gives us our rest. So my objective, again, what we take off here, my objective is to point out the things that this local ministry, this local body needs to, to circumcise away from us so that we're able to sort of new heights. And then what we need to put into us to sort of new heights in Christ so that we can continue to labor to enter into his rest. Amen? So number one, and this is just a review, what we said a couple weeks ago, what do we need to be prepared, to be prepared for the crossroads? And we said self-control. And I said, self-control, that is the freedom of righteousness. (laughs) That's the freedom that we... In Christ, we are free to do His righteousness. Everybody feels like they're so shackled down. No, you're free to do the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're free to do that. You're free to do... How did Pastor Hill say? You're free to do everything but sin. You know what that requires then? Self-control. Because I'm going to tell you, everybody has flesh. And everybody's flesh wants to sin. Everybody's flesh wants to be out of control. 
But we're believers. So by faith, we're free to do the righteousness of Christ. Faith should order your steps. If you, if you truly believe in the hope of glory, then we're free to do the righteousness of Christ. And that should make sense to you. And so self-control, we gave another word for this, and it's temperance. And as we all know, that is a fruit of the Spirit. And that's in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love and everything that falls under it. Self-control or temperance. And we said temperance is the concentration of all man's power, ability, and capability on doing God's will. In and through whatever calling he appoints. We said it's the denial or restraining of people, restraining of things, restraining of your desires, no matter how innocent it is. If it interferes with your walk with God, we need to exercise some temperance. We need to exercise some self-control. That means if your little blessings, your little angel, start to interfere with your walk with God, you need to exercise some self-control. You know why? Because God says, if you walk close with me, I'll show you how to love your little angel. But if it interferes with your walk with me, you'll put your little angel before me. You need to have self-control. Temperance. Make sure that God is first in all that you do. And we said that if self-control or temperance is not exercised on a continual basis, it will leave you a blind prisoner. And we gave a reference to that. We looked at Samson, who was a, he was a mighty man of God. Listen, with the Spirit of God with him, there wasn't nothing Samson couldn't do. But we saw he was drawn away with his own lust. We saw, for, if you read about Samson, you see from the beginning, he had a woman problem. And a lack of self-control. We saw how he was able to strangle a lion with the Spirit of God. But still held captive by his own self-control. We saw all the works that he did with the Spirit of God with him. But then, drawn away with his own lust, and the Spirit of God was gone. And he literally, when the Philistines caught him that time, when Delilah deceived him, they burned his eyes out. He was blind. Then they put him on a millstone like a, like a beast of burden. He was a blind prisoner. And let me tell you what that means to be blind. That's to be without the knowledge of God. A prisoner, a slave to the lust of your flesh. And not because he didn't know God, he refused to take his, 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 he refused to take his counsel. What did we say hardening your heart was? See, harden your heart, you will lose the Spirit of God. Because you want to hear what you want to hear. You will lose the Spirit of God. So what did we say a lack of self-control can lead to? We said it leads to unruly impulses, right? If you can't control yourself. We talked about the excessive urge to eat. And that, you know what, when I, when I talked about that, that hit home to me, right? Because I'm going to tell you, throughout all my life, I had a self-control. I still, need, I still have to continually keep that self-control issue I have down. Self-control issue. It's funny, right? Y- y'all know, a couple years ago, I was way heavier than this. I lost all that weight, and I was like, oh, I'm good. Now I can keep it off. I, I got my self-control. But my whole body chemistry changed. Because before, what it was with me is I loved to eat meat. I was a big meat eater. And I'm like, oh, I'm good now. I got it under control. And now my body chemistry changed and I can't stay away from sweets. Oh, God is like, it ain't got nothing to do with you and what you, what you need to stay away from. It's about your self-control. There's a self-control thing that you need, to, you need to keep continually coming to me for so I can help you with it. And you, ha- you know what the thing about self-control is? You got to humble yourself, right? Nobody likes to hear about themselves. Nobody likes to hear about themselves. I'm telling you, over the years, my wife would say things to me. My parents would say things to me. And you know what I would do? I would get irritated. Like, don't talk to me about it. Don't talk to me about it. And really, at the root of it all, 
It was a self-control issue. Nobody likes to hear about themselves. But you have to humble yourself. That's part of your self-control. That's part of your self-control is humbling yourself. Can't let your pride get out of control either. Or you will not change. And we, I said the urge is to overeat, but sexual misconduct, you have to learn to control yourself. Let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you this right now. And this is something that my father told me, and, it, and I see how things are learned to the Because my father told me this, and he shared that with probably everybody in this ministry, but he, he liked women. Right? And me growing up, I was the same way. And I still do. Let me get that right with you, right? But it's a self-control issue every day. Because guess what? I, I work with women. I go to church with women. I see women on a daily basis. And I'm not going to say that, oh, because I'm self, I have self-control, I don't find that woman attractive. That's a lie. That's a, so you have, to, you, have to, you have to humble yourself and recognize some things. Acknowledge some things about yourself. Or you won't have self-control. You have to acknowledge some things about it. You have to, you have to acknowledge, first off, okay, this is the issue I have, and it is unruly. It is ungodly. It's not the right thing. Even though the world may say it's right, even though I know people that might be involved in these same things, it's not right. God says church of the living water needs self-control. See, these are basic principles, but we need to get back around to them. We feel like we know so much, right? See, that, that's, it's so funny, right? In, in this prayer and fasting time, I'm like, I know what God, ooh, God has got something so big and grand for me. Oh, he does. But know this, his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. He said, go back to self-control. So you lost a little weight. So what? Let's go back to self-control. Because you don't just need it in that area. You need it in every area of your life. And we talked about in Proverbs 25 where it says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit... It's like a city that is broken down without walls. So that means a man without self-control is an easy victim to his lust and his desires. Easy victim. Easy prey. We talked about being led away with your own lust and how, remember Pastor Hill said you're, you're like a fish in water. And I said, well, let's take it a bit further. Just like Samson. You had a woman problem. You threw yourself out. You threw the lure out there and he said, well, let me hop on in there and get that. You bait and set your own trap. And then want to blame the devil because you're not accountable to it. The devil only presents and persuades based off of your. Don't come blaming him. Listen, he present, presents and persuades off your issues. Just like God deals with you off of your issues. And he says the issue for church living water is self control. In every area. Every area. And we're talking about being accountable, but, you know, when self-control comes up and you're liable to pop out or pop off it or whatever, if you're not controlling yourself, we all, like I said, we like to blame somebody else. Oh, they, they pushed me to that level. They kept, they kept coming. They kept coming. I had to pop off on them. I had to put them in their place. And then we like to push it off on somebody else. Never dealing with our own issues. Never dealing with our own self-control issues. But that's, that's the key, right? Quit looking at other people. God is trying to talk to you. 
He's not trying to tell you, come here, my child. Now let me tell you about your brother and sister over there. Cause you need, no, come here and let me correct you. And then you can live the right way, and then maybe your brother and sister can see that and correct themselves. But self-control, we have to take, we have to take a hold of it. We can't procrastinate with not dealing with it. What, what is procrastination? Anybody? It's the gateway to wrath. It's the gateway to God's wrath in your life. And it's the gateway for the wrath of whatever it... Let me tell you, the, let me tell you about the, the wrath of, uh, of, of, of procrastinating dealing with self-control. I was headed down a... My lack of self-control, I was headed to my grave. I went to the hospital maybe three or four times with heart failure. Oh, didn't deal with my own, my own self-control. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was on my way. I woke up in the middle of the night having to bother my wife with it. It's not a bother to her, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I've been able to breathe. Having to go to the emergency room. Oh, I'll handle it later. Oh, I'll, I'll change my diet later. No self-control until it comes, it boils to a point. Now feel the wrath of your lack of self-control. And I said the wrath of God, and all the, all, all the wrath of God is, is His love and action against sin. So if we can stay in His will, you don't have to worry about that wrath. But self-control, it's needed. And then we looked at what are men's thought on self-control? And I gave an example, for example, the urge to overeat. I said, you could definitely put a chain on the refrigerator and give that key to somebody else. But that's not the control that the Spirit offers. The Spirit doesn't want you to chain yourself. That's, that's not the control the Spirit offers. Okay, well then, we all, we're all believers, right? So, and we all have the Spirit, so why don't we have self-control, the fruit of the Spirit? And we said, because all people are not living under the Spirit's control. We went to Ephesians chapter 5 and it said, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Whatever your wine is, don't, don't think of, that they're just talking about drinking. Whatever your wine is, don't let that control you. Be filled with the Spirit. Whether it's your, your, your sexual immorality, if that's your wine, and you, let, you allow your sexual feelings to order your steps, or if it's actually wine and you're drunk with that and you can't be sober-minded, whatever it is, we're living under the, under the control of those things instead of living under the control of the Spirit. So how do we take possession of the righteous strength that God has made available to us by the Spirit? I already said it. You have to be disciplined. Disciplined to the Word. Disciplined to prayer, discipline to biblical fellowship so we can learn about self-control. Quit trying to teach yourself about it. If you try to teach yourself about it, you're going to, te- you're going to let the world teach you. And in family life, we, we, we figure out the ways of this world, right? Only thing that matters to them is money, power, respect, and everything in between. And know what that sounds like to me? No self-control. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can and watch out. Anybody want to come get my stuff? We got Plex. We got beef. I'm sorry, Plex is, that's a vernacular that I grew up with. That means beef for, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but discipline. 
Discipline ensures us that we stay in God's will. Uh, discipline to those things. We said that discipline is our SOP. Those are our standard operating procedures. If we want to be able to support ourselves, support our family, support members of this biblical fellowship, then we have to have discipline. That's how we have to operate. Uh, discipline to those things. Not discipline to whatever you think you need to be disciplined to. Discipline to what God says we need to be disciplined to. So we said, what is discipline? And we said, discipline is the God-given strategy to carefully chart your spiritual growth so that we can be effective for his kingdom. That means you have to take things at God's pace and not your own pace. You try to move ahead without being disciplined and learning, you're going to stunt your growth. The thing about being disciplined, if, if you're disciplined to the word, if you're disciplined to prayer, if you're disciplined to this biblical fellowship, what do we say? If you stumble, then you have an advocate that's going to help you up and say, my dear brother, that was the wrong way to do it. Let me show you how to walk. Let me show you so that you don't have to stumble that way again. Oh, you might stumble a different way, but you won't have to stumble that way again. But that only comes if you're disciplined to those things. Because if, you think, if you're not disciplined and you think you can just call on the name of the Lord whenever you want to, you're sadly mistaken. Sadly mistaken. So how do we lay hold of self-control? And we said you have to be accountable. And I touched on that already. We can't try to pawn it off on somebody else or pawn it off on the devil saying that the devil did it. No, you have to be accountable for your, for your, for your own actions, for your own lusts. You have to be accountable for those. Then you have to choose Christ. Discipline is a choice. So you have to choose to be disciplined to those things that we said so that you're able to choose Christ. If you're not disciplined to those things, you will not choose Christ. You'll choose what you think Christ is. You know, not being disciplined to the biblical fellowship and you try to teach yourself about Christ, you'll choose what you think Christ is. Listen, there is no disciple without discipline. Plain and simple. If you are a disciple of Christ, you have to be disciplined. There is no disciple without discipline. So prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. Have your hearts fixed. So we can apply self-control. Number two, we touched on this last week. What do we need to be prepared for the crossroads so we can soar to new heights in Christ? We said forgiveness, and I love this. So what is the attitude of forgiveness? And again, we said it was long-suffering, kindness, meekness, humility. And I'm going to go through those things a little bit again here before we get into our new information. So what is long-suffering? And we said long-suffering is the patient restraint of anger. It means I'll wait patiently for someone to make progress, to make changes, or to hear what I'm trying to communicate to them. It means if someone offends you and they repent, I should be able to forgive them. Uh, God's been long-suffering with us. I'm going to tell you this right now. I have repented more than once in my life. 
And God has been long-suffering with me. So why can't we be long-suffering with our brother? We can have one offense happen to us and we'll be through with them for a lifetime. What if God was like that? Uh, If he was, we wouldn't even have had a chance to receive Christ. Because none are good. No, not one. We came in, that would be coming into this world condemned. How many of us are condemning people like your God? Playing God in people's lives. Like that feeling of power, right? Humble yourself. And we said kindness. And I love this. This is needed in church living water. It really is. And kindness means that when I say I forgive you, I mean it. And I won't hold that offense against you. Because I care for you. And I want to show you my care. It means being helpful. Being attentive. Being a benefit to a person or a certain situation. That's what kindness is. And we said there's a difference between kind and being nice. I could be nice to you. Hey, how you doing? How's the weather out there? That's not kindness. That's being polite. Those are your manners. You can teach a child that. That's not kindness. There's a difference between kindness and being polite and being nice. Kindness is to give your favor to a person. Not to use it to manipulate them. Uh, God is so kind. (laughs) He's given his favor to us through Christ. That's the kindness that we should have. Remember, kindness is an attitude of forgiveness. You know, somebody asked me over the week, one of my dear sisters here, I love her dearly, and she asked me, what if a person comes to me and, you know, and, I, and they wrong me and they, and they, don't, they don't repent? You know, they're not, they're not seeking forgiveness. I told her, you know, that doesn't change your attitude. You still need to keep the attitude of forgiveness. Because guess what? It may be because you don't have that attitude of forgiveness that they're not coming to ask for it. Maybe it's you not approachable. Or maybe they're just not apologizing, apologetic for it. But if you continue in that attitude of forgiveness, years down the road, I bet you they'll come seek you out. If they stay around you. If, you, if they stay around you and you show these characteristics, you know the characteristics of Christ, and they are a believer, I can guarantee you they'll come seek your forgiveness. I, if they don't, guess what? You still have to maintain the attitude of forgiveness. You still have to maintain your kindness. Because if you don't, you don't don't understand what you carry with you, right? That malice and stuff in your heart, and you think that it's gone because I don't even deal with them no more. But the next person you see that is unforgiving, or that may be potentially unforgiving, you're like, I'm not even going to pull myself together with them. And God is like, but I'm purposing you to be with them. No kindness. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit as well. It's called gentleness. It's called being compassionate, being considerate, being gentle with each other. Not always coming from the flesh, 
Not always responding so quickly. That's kindness. We said that being kind or gentle conveys the idea of being adaptable to others. Rather than harshly requiring everyone else to adapt to one's own needs and desires, when kindness is working in the believer, they seek to become adaptable to the needs of others. Remember I said the needs of others. I didn't say the wants or desires of others. The needs of others. That's what being kind is. Being being adaptable to others. And we said this is so contrary to the flesh. Nobody wants to change for another person. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to become adaptable for another person. But Christ did it. But made of himself no reputation. Listen, he put on the formness of man. He became adaptable to us. And then there's still some that won't accept him. But guess what? I'm still going to be kind. Because that's the gospel message. Forgiveness through Christ. How can, we not, how can we preach that gospel message of forgiveness through Christ but not forgive our brother? Holding frustrations in your heart. We talked about holding frustrations in your heart. We said that that will what? Change the gospel message. We looked at Moses. How when the, when the people of Israel frustrated him, talking about they should have been left in Egypt, he got frustrated. God gave him a specific, uh, specific command, told him to speak to the rock. And what did Moses do? He struck it twice. That rock is Christ. And Christ was designated to die once. So in his frustration, he struck it twice and changed the gospel message. And we read last week what happened to him. Him, along with those children of Israel, he, he did not get to enter into the land of Canaan, the land of rest. Allowing your frustration to change the gospel message. And meekness. We said a meek, a meek person is controlled by kindness. You see how they work hand in hand? See, that's the harmony of the fruit of the Spirit. That's why all you need is love and everything else that falls underneath it. Meekness is a person that's controlled by kindness. Like I said, not ready to pop off at every, every given moment. Not ready to add fuel to the fire. The strong person is a meek person. Sometimes a meek person says, you know what, it's not time for me to react to what was just said there. Because if I react now, it's go- all hell is going to break loose. I need, to, I need to go home and practice some self-control first. Oh, they all work together. Uh, Going to practice your self-control before you pop it off, that's kindness. Oh, because God could pop off with his wrath on sin right now, but he has self-control and he's going to wait until those who come into the knowledge of his son before his wrath on sin is delivered. That's kindness. A kind God. His mercies are new every day. But our mercies are new every, what, ten years? Our mercy is on an individual that, that did us wrong. It may not be, listen, our mercy may not be for your lifetime. It may be you get one chance and it's over. I'm done with that person. I've said that before. I'm finished with them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but we've all said that before. I'm finished with that person. I'm done with them. That's not kindness. That's not kindness. I don't want God to be done with me. That's not kindness. That's not meekness. I said a meek person is able to 
be a soothing medicine to a person who's, 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 pop, who's pumped up or a situation that's pumped up? Are you one that always add fire, add fuel to that fire? If something's popping off, are you the one in the background like, no, let's get it popping. Let's get it going. Are you, are you the one who brings the, the meek? Are, are, are you one who, who brings it down a level? Are you the one that calms down the situation? Do you practice your meekness? And we said another characteristic found in forgiveness is humility. And we all know that's the opposite of being prideful. And in, as it says in James, God sets himself against the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, listen, bow down your prideful attitude. If, listen, if you don't want to go up against God, bow down your prideful attitude. I don't even want to say it like that, like go against God. It's no contest, right? You want to be disobedient? You want to be a bastard? You, you know, a fatherless child? Then don't obey. Stay humble. Know that we all need saving. But God has shown himself kind, tenderhearted, and forgiven to us. He gave his son, he gave his son to, so, so that we can have forgiveness. And we don't have to give up nothing just to forgive somebody. Just what we think that we have. So what is forgiveness? And <clears throat> we said forgiveness is to forget one's previous stance on the matter. And to carefully and patiently restore the offender to your favor. All the while remembering that God has forgiven me through Christ. So we need to pattern our forgiveness after His. Just like God was finished with His work in Genesis, we are too to be finished with our work of unforgiveness. If you want to enter into rest. And we said this last week too. What if they don't repent? Pray for them. That's what you need to do. You need to pray for them and keep the attitude of forgiveness. What if they spitefully use you like they did Christ? They spit on him. They beat him. They mocked him. And and, and in the midst of his death happening, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's a heart... Listen, sometimes, you know, I read about Christ, it gets overwhelming to me to see how kind he truly is. To see how forgiving he truly is. Because I'm telling you, if somebody spit at me, listen, I don't even want to go there, right? Y'all already know. that. That's almost, I'd rather get punched in the face than get spit on. But his humble, meek spirit, his kind spirit, just allowed him to pray for him. You know why? Because at the end I'll be all of it, I still want to see them in glory. I came, but listen, my purpose was to die for that one that spit at me. Was to give my life for that one who, who beat me, who laughed at me. That's my purpose. That was the purpose of Christ. Uh, Listen, that's your purpose. 
Pray for those that spitefully use you. And we say with true forgiveness, you can begin to restore someone to their rightful position. And we saw that it was all over the scriptures. Joseph forgiving his brother and they were restored as brothers. David restoring the land to Mephibosheth. Said it right this time. And then offered him a seat at his table. That's forgiveness. The, the prodigal son. He, he went home just hoping to be a servant in his father's house. But that heart of forgiveness said, no, you restored as my son. God who gave his son for our forgiveness so that we could be restored into fellowship with him. So that we can labor and enter into his rest. True forgiveness brings restoration with it. But unforgiveness, it brings bitterness, frustration. Has you feeling fed up, not willing to deal with another person. When God said, listen, he was, he was in the middle of his death. Not, no, no, he, people who thought, you know, they thought, because we know Christ laid down his life, but the ones who thought that they were there killing him. And then he prayed to the Father for them. On the day, of, at the time of his death, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So there are spiritual consequences to unforgiveness and we say this alienation from God. Why? Because he commands us to forgive. And disobedience will leave you alienated from God. And I think we're going to, you know, we touched on a few other things as well, the obstacles to forgiveness. So we went through anger. And I have to say this again. We read it in Ephesians. It's okay to be angry. It says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 verse 26, it says, Be angry, but sin not. So, listen, we're all human. We all get angry. But sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. And what do we say that means? Don't dwell on your anger. Certain things you have to release to God. Even if a person is not looking for forgiveness. Don't dwell on your anger. That's what gives place to the devil. That's what allows him to come in and start setting up those strongholds in your life. Don't dwell on it. Some things you've got to release and let go. Oh, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not. But nothing's impossible for God. Uh, I hear you say that, Isaac, but, uh, Brother Isaac, but I, uh, it's, not, it's just not easy. Yeah, you know what it requires? Faith. Uh, it requires faith. Your ability to endure until we see Christ face to face, it requires that. And we said fear. Fear of losing leverage in a relationship. Fear of losing power and control. All these things here. Listen. You want to play God with somebody, right? We said fear of losing power and control. You want to hold something over their head, right? You owe me. You did this to me. What if God held something over our head? I mean, you've got to ask yourself, Brother Isaac, you just asked that question. Yeah, you've got to ask yourself this question in everything. Because you're calling yourself a believer, right? One who walks by faith. And not by sight. And not by your, your petty disagreements. Not by your anger. 
Not by your fear. You walk by faith. And we said there's a few misconceptions, and I'm not going to go through them extensively because I've got to get to this new information, but I'm going to mention them again. We said it's not excusing the behavior when you forgive somebody. It's not forgetting what happened. And it's not giving your trust back to that person. Because, listen, trust has to be earned. You don't just give your trust out to anybody. But remember we said it's patiently restoring your favor to a person. Didn't we say that? It's not just, okay, you're forgiven, now I'm trusting you with everything again. No. It's patient. See, kindness, that forgiving attitude, it's, that's another thing that happens over a process of time. It's not going to be instant. You've got to be disciplined to these things. It's not agreeing to reconcile, because again, some person may never want to reconcile with you. And that's Okay. The kind thing to do in a lot of situations is not, to, not try to be reconciled with somebody when y'all come together, it's always an explosion. The kind thing would be, you know what, I need to remove myself from that situation. But when you see me, you will see the attitude of forgiveness. And then lastly, before we get into the new information, we said that not only must we keep the attitude of forgiveness, but we have to seek forgiveness for our past wrongs as well. And I gave y'all an example of what I meant, right? I talked about my friend who just recently came back in my life. We were so close in high school, close in college, roommates. And he knew I was a pastor's son. He knew I was a believer. Uh, but he just knew that in word only because me and him did some sinful things together. And now that he's back in my life, I can't just come to him preaching. Because guess where we left off? We left off at sin. So the first thing I did to him was apologize. Listen, my brother, I apologize for the things that I was involved with. I led you astray from God. I did because we did it together. Oh, but, and I say I did because I knew the truth. I didn't even bother to see if he did. But I know I did. You won't be able to move forward... I said it last week, right? You don't have to go seek out people that maybe you've done wrong, but if they're still in your life, if God brings them back in your life, God is trying to tell you something. I hope you're listening to Him. And I hope you approach them with the attitude of forgiveness. Not with the attitude of I'm better than you and look at my life now, see where I am now, don't you want to be here? No. Nobody wants to be there. Got to seek forgiveness. Then you're able to bring somebody to a place of restoration. Then they're able to see, oh, I see how they got to this place. I see where they came from. So number three. What do we need to be prepared for the crossroads so we can soar to new heights in Christ? And I said it earlier. Sacrifice. Sacrifice means being a willing servant. Sacrifice is your true worship. That's the offering that the Lord accepts. Sacrifice is the work of a brother and a sister. You're a brother and sister in the Lord. Somebody asks you, what does that mean? It means I'm a willing servant. To God and His people. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10.
Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to start at verse 32. And I'm going to give you a little background on what's going on here, right? Jesus and the disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, right? And from, listen, from, Mark, from the beginning of Mark up to chapter 10, God is teaching the disciples about service. And everything he does, he's teaching them about service. But here we are, Mark chapter 10, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is, Jesus is telling them again, this is not the first time, but he's telling them again what's going to happen to him. He's predicting his death. He's telling them it's coming, and they see Christ headed straight toward his death with purpose on mind. So I'm going to start at verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were in the way, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. They were amazed because Jesus was headed toward his death. That's what I want you to know. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, I want you to understand they were afraid because Jesus was headed toward his death. I want you to understand that. They, they were amazed that he is still going toward his purpose, knowing what's in store for him. And they were afraid, not only for his life, but for their own lives too. They were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest, and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now verse 35, this is where I want to get to. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatever we desire. I had to stop there. So, off the bat, right off the muscle, people are like, wow. Who would come to the Lord and tell him, I want you to give me what I want? Right? But let's be honest today. There's plenty of us in here that can identify with that. Let's think about what they asked for, though, right? Let's read verse 33. Actually, no, not 33. 35, 36. And he said unto them, What would you that I should do for you? Now, I want to tell you this right now. That was a rhetorical question. (laughs) That was a rhetorical question. Keep following me. And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in glory. Wow. Right. So It's real easy to look on the outside, looking in and be like, wow, y'all are asking to sit next to his right and left hand side in glory. But let's not judge him too hard. Because if you examine their heart behind that question, You'll be able to see that some of us in here might have that same heart. What, what do you mean, Brother Isaac? Well, this passage reveals the heart of idolatry. Uh, you know, putting something before God. Because, listen, what if they say they want? This is what I want. And let me tell you something. God, we'll get there. But this is what I want, right? What did we say that idolatry was, right? Covetousness is idolatry. Putting something or someone else before God in your heart. Self-centeredness. You replace God with what you really want. Right? And if it, if it goes unchecked, we'll begin to worship those things other, other than God. Right? And then, not only that, if it goes unchecked and, you're, and it's subtle, we might even ask God to help us worship those things. We're going to get there too. But, you know what? 
we might not always take that unconditional whatever I want approach, right? Like like James and John did. We might not take that. Often we become a little more humble and modest about it, trying to hide it, right? You know, God, I, I, I promise I'll do anything for you if you give me this A on this test. I promise to serve you if you just get me through this one night. I know I haven't been at the biblical fellowship, you know, your church, for a while. But I still need this raise at work. Just give it to me. Give me this raise and I promise I will. God, I'm sacrificing everything for you. I just want a husband. I just want a wife. And I promise I'll sacrifice everything for you. Can we imagine this in another context? Let, let me, let's bring it to a natural context. What if I went to my wife and said, Babe, I love you. And I'll sacrifice everything for you if you help me find another wife. Oh, God, I love you. And I'll sacrifice everything for you if you help me worship my other God. That's, that's, the, that's the attitude we're approaching God with. Oh, put it in our context, we can now see that, right? But that's the attitude that we're approaching God with. Not sober-minded. That's, let me tell you something. That's irreverent and despicable. I tell you, my, if I was to come to my wife like that, listen, we have to practice some kindness, some long-suffering, some meekness. We have to call the hospital. We're going to have to do all that. See what I'm saying? But we do serve a kind God. A merciful God. But maybe James and John are too straightforward for you, right? Let's jump down to verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Now I want you to understand that began to be, that denotes a process of time, right? That denotes a process. They began to be upset and displeased with him. But why were they displeased with him? Why were they indignant with him? Were they mad because they asked a question? Mm. To me personally, especially based off what we'll read a little bit later in a second, I think they were jealous. They were probably thinking, man, I should have asked God first. I should have asked God first. Maybe they were secretly thinking, you know what, if I keep my head down and just work as hard as I can, then Jesus will give me whatever I want. But no, James and John came with a sneak attack from the back door and tried their way first. And it's so funny, too. And you should take your time and read through the Gospels, right? In Matthew chapter 20, it says that they came with their mama. Oh, oh, it did. It said that their mother brought James and John to ask Jesus what was going on. Oh, it was a family affair. They were really trying to get what they wanted. Oh, go read it. It's in Matthew 20. They brought their mama with them. As a matter of fact, their mama addressed them first and Jesus was like, I'm addressing them because I know where this question is coming from. But they brought the whole family in on the affair. And then all of a sudden, the hearts of the other ten disciples were revealed. They wanted the same thing as James and John did. Just too proud to say so. So what about you? Are you that direct type, you know, telling God, this is what I want? This is what I desire? Or do you do the indirect out, you know, the, the indirect approach? 
trying to outdo others with your own religious works or services, hoping that God has something else for you. Uh, you're supposed to repent and be finished with your works. Hoping that God will make all your dreams come true. What you want. But how does Jesus respond to the disciples? Does he say, you know what, because you've asked me for this much, I'm not going to give you nothing ever. Does he say, you pushed too hard this time, you are not a disciple. He doesn't say that at all. Let's look at verse, let's go back to verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, he's telling them, you don't know what you're asking. Like I said, it was a rhetorical question from the jump. It was a rhetorical question from the jump. What he was telling them is, it requires sacrifice to drink from the cup that I'm drinking from. Uh, the cup of suffering, it requires sacrifice. You're not going to be able just to get in because you think you're my friend. You know, because the disciples were his friends. They spent their whole ministry with him. They were his close friends. And they thought, oh, we get first dibs, let me ask. Can you give me what I want? Jesus was saying, listen, I'm not going to be wealthy. I'm not going to be number one on your music charts. I'm not going to be loved. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be hated. And yet I'm going to lay down my life still. So that, so that many can have life. Let's look at verse 45 and we'll see what Jesus says here. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. That word minister, let me break it down for you, is serve. I didn't come to be served. I came to be of service. That's true sacrifice. That's just amazing to me. His closest friends are literally asking him, can you give me what I want? And Jesus being Jesus, he doesn't say, okay, here you go. If you put... Three years of blood, sweat, and tears in, I'll make sure you get a, p a good position in my kingdom. No. That's not what Jesus said. If you cast out 600 demons in my name, you'll get a good place in my kingdom. No. He says, listen, I didn't come for your service. I came to be of service. I came to serve you. The served of all to be the servant of all. And give his life ransom for many. That's the love of God. <laughs> oh, that's God's love. We come to God saying, I want, I want, I want. Give me, give me, give me. And God says, I love you more than your wants. You need something way more than your wants. You need rescuing. You need salvation. So let me tell you what. So I tell you what. Instead of giving you your wants, I'm going to give you life. Whew. That wrath of God, His love and action against sin, Jesus took His wrath. He took it on Himself. 
by taking our sin. Uh, but don't worry, death could not hold him down. The wages of sin is death, but death could not hold him down. He's the Lamb of God, spotless, harmless, without sin. He sacrificed his life to bring life to many. He came to serve. Let's read verse 43 through 45 again. But so shall it not be among... Actually, you know what? Let's read verse 42 through 45. And it says, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto him, Ye know that, ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, or shall be your server, your servant. And whoever and whosoever of you will be the cheapest shall be servant of all. See, we were called out by God's love. Not to be the most prestigious, not to seek self seek self praise, but to be a servant. A willing servant. That's our sacrifice. What if everybody at COLW was eager to serve? What if, you know, the selfishness at this church was met with sacrificial love? What if we brought that attitude into our jobs and into our homes and our neighborhoods? I hear you. I know I came to serve, but Brother Isaac, what about what I want? Listen, God wants to give you the desires of your heart, but you have to do something first. You know what you have to do? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and leave all the extra stuff to God. Seeking him first means that I put him first in everything that I do. And when I do that, guess whose desires become your desires? And then if his desires become your desires, he'll give you everything you want. He'll give you everything you want. But you've got to seek him first. Well, how do I make his desires my desires? Good question. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to start at verse 23. And if you're not there, I'm just going to keep reading. And he said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So how do I make his desires my, my desires? It means you have to deny yourself. Deny means sometimes you're going to have to say no. We said that before, right? No is a sign of maturity. Sometimes you have to say no. To be a true living sacrifice, you have to deny yourself. That means you might have to suffer for his name's sake. But know this, those who suffer or labor with him will be glorified. And to suffer and labor with him is what we know as sacrifice. So what is sacrifice, right? A sacrifice is an offering of what you, you deem has great value in exchange for the greatest. For Christ. So deny self is the total relinquishing of this lower life and its proclivities. 
It's your willingness, your willingness to make yourself bow down. That's how you preserve your life to come. One who can't surrender the lesser life for the greater life will lose both. I want you to know that. You may have all you want here on this side, but if you don't surrender the lesser life for the greater life, you're going to lose both. So to offer that, the sacrifice that God accepts, what do we need? We need faith. It's always been faith. <laughs> we need to believe and walk in that belief. See, under the Old Testament, under the First Covenant, it was their faith in the coming of Christ that caused the people to sacrifice. You know what? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick. And if you're not there, it's okay. i got time to make up. So Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by he being dead, yet speaketh. Verse 11. Through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Let's go to verse 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Hmm. See, those sacrifices before Christ came, they gave their best to God. And God was able to give them their best. Because there's those sacrifice, it represented Christ. And all his perfection. Their sacrifices. In faith, they represent Christ. Without spot or without blemish. Uh, an upright sacrifice. One that God can accept. And then of course, under the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the covenant that you're under, it was Christ. Perfect and upright. The acceptable sacrifice. So if that's the only acceptable sacrifice that God accepts, then we need to put on Christ. Like I said, He is the Lamb of God. He's the one that's upright, without spot, without blemish. He's the one that can take your sin, go to hell, and then rise, and death can't hold Him. He's the one that God's pleased with. None of us, listen... If sin was to be put on us and we were to go to hell, we'd be in hell for eternity. I can't look around this room and see anybody without spot or blemish. It's Christ alone and His righteousness. That's the sacrifice God accepts. And once we come through the blood of Jesus, we are now priests under God. We were talking about the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, Aaron and his sons were the high priest and the priest. And they would dress them in, in, in garments and robes which represented righteousness. But under the New Covenant, Christ is our high priest. And we're the priest under God. Let's turn to First Peter real quick. See, now we have a more excellent ministry. <laughs> He's the mediator for a better covenant. 
Amen. First Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Ye also as lively stones are built up, a spiritual house, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which is which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto also, also they were appointed but ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous night, light, and now we, now we can offer spiritual sacrifice. But you have to surrender yourself to God. To his will, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, because that's the only sacrifice that God accepts. Dependence on God is shown by our sacrifice. Spiritual sacrifices they receive from the heart of God's people, not our mouths. Because our hearts, they carry our true intentions. They carry our true affections. What we say from our heart, that's all that God's listening to. He's not listening to your, your vain actions, your religious works, whatever you think that he's going to accept. No, he's listening to Christ from your heart. In Matthew chapter 15 it says, The people draw nigh to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But the heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me. You know, offer sacrifices. In vain they offer their sacrifices. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Whoo, that time, that time. And I may go a little over today, but I need to get to a point. Chapter 5, verse 1. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear. I'll get to that. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Now, we don't want to give the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is a ritual, self, selfish, self-righteous type of sacrifice. You know, going through the motions. But we're supposed to be through with our own works. Because none of us are righteous. No, not one. And then I said, I was going to go back to that word here. It says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear. That word here means to obey. That's what that word here means. So let me tell you. The only sacrifice that God will accept now that Christ has come. The only spiritual sacrifice that you in here as believers need to be concerned with. It's obedience. Wow, bomb, right. That's it. That's all he's accepting. is obedience to Christ. That's the only sacrifice you need to be concerned with. Obedience. Let us hear the conclusion on the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's your spiritual sacrifice to offer up. Obedience. 
Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 here. And if you're not there, it's okay. I will get there. Chapter 15, verse 22. And I want to kind of give you a little backstory. This is about Saul, right? God had told Saul to go in there and destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites. And everything that they had. Don't take none of it. And there was disobedience. Oh, they destroyed them, but they took the best of their flock. They took the best of what they had. Let's read it. And I'm going to start at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And it says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight as great delight. And I want you to know what, also when I, when I read this verse, he took some of those, you know, the first that he got from the Amalekites and stuff, and they offered it up to God. You know, they own, they own order of worship. He offered it up to God like it's going to be okay. So here we go. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, you try to do what you think that God wants. To obey is better than that. Obedience is better than sacrifice. But in order to do that, guess what you got to have? you got to have clean hands and a pure heart. If you have that, it will be nothing for you to obey. Oh, it will be a sacrifice, but sacrifices, listen, that's fine. I can do that. You know why? Because the end result of sacrifice is life for many. So we have to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. It's not a tool to indulge in your lust, to indulge in your sins. It's a tool to yield to the will of God. It's not conforming or patterning our ways after the ways of this world, but being transformed into the image of His dear Son. Because that's the only sacrifice that He's accepted. So we have to be obedient to Christ. If you want God to be pleased with you, look to Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. That's the proper sacrifice. And I'm going to skip down in my notes here because I need to finish some things. And the thing about it is, you know, when we try to when we start looking to other things in our life as our God, because we were talking about it earlier, right? Idolatry. When you start looking to other things and stop looking to Jesus. We start offering a vain sacrifice. One that's defiled. One that's polluted. You can read up on, in Malachi chapter 1 on a polluted sacrifice. Look at the ver- first six verses. I don't have time to go there this morning, but look it up. A polluted sacrifice. Let's take our jobs and our money for one. Right? We all know we need to work. Uh, not only work, but we need to work as unto the Lord. I just had to say that. That means we have, to do, we have to do our job to the best of our ability without compromising God's standard, which is Christ. Because that's the only sacrifice He's pleased with. But let's take that, right? And let's think about it. Let's, let's catalog it truly, right? Let's say you have a full-time job and you spend nine hours a day at the job because it's an eight-hour shift, but you have your hour lunch. So you spend nine hours a day at the job, right? Let's map this out. Let's start from the night before. Let's say you go to sleep at 10. You get up at 5.30. You get ready at 5.30 and you leave by 
and you get to work and you work all day until 5, if you can leave right at 5, because we know how that goes when the day's ending, right? That leaves you four and a half hours in your day. Because from 5 to 10, or 5.30, whatever, you, then you're going to go back to sleep. You're going to eat, then you're going to go to sleep. So that leaves you four and a half hours for the day. And if you haven't been disciplined to word, to the prayer, to biblical fellowship, that leaves you four and a half hours a day for your family and for the things of God. So the majority of one's awake time is given to the job. And of course, this is how they designed it. That's how the world designs it, right? They want you to build up a dependency on them for as little as they can pay you. And then they want you to think that you can't make it without them. Yeah, I've literally heard somebody say to me at work, we're your family. Hmm. No, you're not my mom. You're not my dad. You're not my brother. You're not my sister. You're not my daughter. You're not my son. You're not my niece. You're not my nephew. However, they want you to make the decisions like they are. And there's the trap. Not to mention... If they offer something like overtime, right? And because we've been dependent on them and we don't think we can make it without them, we're willing to take that overtime at the expense of our worship too. We'll schedule our overtime during times we're supposed to be coming up here to meet. Uh, You have to be disciplined to biblical fellowship. So we'll schedule stuff like our overtime, you know, asking so when we're supposed to be here to meet, and then you think, Oh, they're going to give me this raise. God, help them give me this raise. But you're sacrificing what you're, what you're supposed to be disciplined to. Asking God to help you worship another job, another God. So what happens in the process of time, right? Not only does the, the job become our family, but it becomes our God. And we offer up sacrifices to our job. Like our families. Like our walk with God. Like all of our time. And we stop looking to Jesus. And when you start looking to your job and your money as your help, you start making wrong decisions. You start making bad decisions because, first off, the only decisions that you need to be making if you're offering up the sacrifice that God accepts is obedience to His Word. But now you're being obedient to your job's Word. And those are the sacrifices you're offering up. You start making wrong choices. You forsake God's ways. You put on the ways and the mentality and the judgment of your job. Now let me tell you the ultimate goal of in the, in, in, in the majority of these jobs and stuff out there. The bottom line is making money because they love it. So if you're putting on their ways, guess what you become? A lover of money. And we all know that the love of money is the root of all evil. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, you know what? Losing your family is losing your soul too. I think of Brother Everhart went to, to Lot, and I'll just finish with this, I'll have to just come back. But he went to Lot this morning, right? And you think about how he set his tent at Sodom. How he looked up and saw. When you look up, you should see God. But he looked up and he saw Sodom. Now, the thing about, about Lot was he, was, he was about that paper, he was about that money. 
That's the thing about Lot. He, he was a politician. And he was all about his money. But if you look at his life, you know, because he gained the world in Sodom, or so he thought. He lost his wife. His daughters raped him, if you will. He lost his soul. All because he stopped looking to God. Oh, because Lot knew God. Abraham knew God, and Lot was in his family. Abraham made sure he knew. But he stopped looking to God. Let's bring it into something else, right? You have your children who want to be in these extracurricular activities. And I'm just going to go to sports because that's one of the most prevalent, right? And you expect them to choose the right thing, right? But what have you been teaching them to choose? Because, you know what, you fathers, you need to teach your children to choose. So what have you been teaching? What do they see at your house? Do you know everything there is to know about your favorite football team? Your favorite football player? Their stats? Their history? And when it comes to the things of Christ, you don't know anything and barely know how to spell his name. And then they come to a point where, okay, now sports are available at school, but I'm trying to please my father. Like anybody should. Like we should please our father guy. I'm trying to please my father, but I know what interests him. So, is it even really a choice for them when they see what pleases their father and what pleases God? Because they have to be taught what's pleasing God, but their, 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 their father is teaching them, but this is pleasing to me more than God. And then you put the choice in their hand. I'm going to guarantee every time they're not choosing God. Because you have to teach them to choose God. Fathers, I don't know why I'm here, but you've got to stop being money hungry. Stop being selfish. Stop being whoremongers. And start looking for the things of God. And when your children are presented with these choices, they're going to be like, okay, yeah, you know what? My father, is, he has the zeal of the things of God. So that's what I'm going to choose. And so they're able to develop their relationship on their own and they can choose Christ on their own. You make them choose. I don't understand that. I'm going to let them have the choice. I'm going to let them choose. Nope. I'm going to tell you what to choose because you need to learn. If you leave it in the child's hand, they're going to choose what's foolish every time. It's going to be foolish. Oh, but I understand why you do that because you're not choosing and you're making foolish decisions. Just like giving them the choice. Let's stand our feet. This has been a teaching message from Church of the Living Water at Austin. For more information about our ministry, please go to our website at livingwateraustin.com. Thank you.